Hello and welcome to the Weekly Four podcast, late Thursday night edition. Roller coaster. My sound quality okay? I'd say it's as good as you're going to get. Got it. Well, sorry about that. We can't find my iPods, um, the wired ones. So are the wired ones called iPods or just headphones? The wired ones are called ear pods. Oh, ear pods. And then the wireless are called AirPods. Got it. Yeah, I'm not, I guess, well up enough on the Apple lingo and terminology. Or the AirPod Pros, which apparently are quite awesome as well. I think they even came out with newer AirPod Pros or newer AirPods now. And I think about it. Very interesting. Well, let's get started on our first topic. A happy 65th, 65th birthday to Houston Oilers legend Warren Moon. Um, he was kind of the Oilers quarterback during kind of their um, second run of heyday. The first was when they had running back Earl Campbell, and those were called the Love You Blue Oilers. Um, uh, Warren Moon was really the quarterback in the late 80s, early to mid 90s. Um, I was a little young to follow those teams, but they were um, very talented, uh, should have gone to a Super Bowl, but they lost in, I think it was like, the biggest playoff comeback of all time. I don't know if that got beaten um, by the, I don't think it even got beaten by the Patriots over the Falcons, but I think we were up like 35 to three on the bills at halftime. And we lost like 30, 41 to 38. And it was like the biggest blown loss in like sports playoff history. Um, That's definitely. painful. Yeah. I was too young luckily for it. Cause Oh my God. Um, Cause I think they literally would have gone to the Super Bowl if they had won that game. So I can only imagine if I was as big of a Houston sports fan back. I think it was 91, I want to say. We'll have to – we need somebody to kind of check our – we need a producer on this thing so we can um, – so we can um, um, so we can literally check our stuff. Your wife is literally texting us as we're doing the podcast. I think you need to kind of just qualify with her. If we're doing the podcast, we're not going to be available. Well – I'm hiding in the bedroom because um, that's where you typically we have hide. A, we have a house guest, and uh, you can say your mother-in-law. Your mother-in-law is there. It's not like she's going to be. Actually, <sighs> no, definitely not listening. But yes, my mother-in-law is here for um, an extended period of time, and so I'm hiding in the bedroom. She's coming for Thanksgiving, and she's staying till Sukkot. <laughs> not funny. <laughs> um, but. Um... So uh, you'll have to let her know, I guess, that I will respond afterwards. I guess she'll be up when we're done with the podcast since you're in the bedroom. Well, so. or at some point I'm going to transition to, you know, my VIP area. You can or say at some point you're going to transition. It's 2021, man. You do you. Oh, thanks. You would still be friends with me if I, I became a chick? I would still be friends with you. <gasps> That's special. I don't so, know what your wife is going to say, but we should definitely go into more detail on that, though, on a different podcast. We can have her on as a guest and cover the topic of how she, if she would still love me if I became a woman. Actually, yeah. I know the answer to that. I'm pretty sure she wouldn't. <laughs> um, so it's his 65th birthday, and it's just kind of amazing. Like all these people, like either you grew up in or like played right before, like they're all now hitting like senior citizenhood um, um, or at least qualifying for Medicare. Um, <laughs> so um, he is a Houston legend. I actually once met him. At a Rockets game, I was probably like eight or nine, and I don't even—I never even saw him or remember seeing him play. But but I was like, "That's Warren Moon," so I went over there and I got his autograph on a piece of paper, and I kept it for a number of years. But um, it it is long gone. But I do have something signed by him, but not that piece of paper I got myself. So, so 
just I don't know the history here. So where did the Oilers they, the Oilers left Houston at some point? The Oilers were an expansion team in I think like this or mid sixties maybe, or they played in the Astrodome, and then the owner Bud Adams in nineteen ninety seven, I want to say, or nineteen ninety eight. Uh, moved them to Tennessee because he couldn't get a new stadium deal done here. Um, he needed a new – Astrodome was falling apart. Um, the Astros were, had just announced that they were getting a new stadium downtown, um, and he wanted a new stadium for the Texans. I think the bond financing or whatever failed, so he took the team and moved them to Tennessee. Um, eventually, then NRG Stadium was built after we lost football because I think the politicians didn't realize at the time how big football was in Texas. Um so NRG Stadium then got the approval to be built, and then the NF- NFL awarded us the Texans, which began playing in 2002 here. So that's kind of the history. Um, and literally, if you have kind of one of these old Houston sports fans, you say the name Bud Adams under them, and they still hate the man for moving the team, even though you could really blame a lot of the city council members at the time for not getting a new stadium because the Astrodome was falling apart. You know, <laughs> politicians not realizing how big football is in Texas is um, if, if, if like that is just incredible. It just says something about politicians. If they could not, everyone knows that football is big in Texas, but I guess they just didn't connect the dots of the economic impact. I might have this little wrong. We may have to bring in a guest on the podcast to have a more definite history. I'm positive. He moved it because he couldn't get a new arena. I don't know as much about that history, but um, it's definitely something to look into. So, uh, uh, or Google at home if you find this interesting you can definitely do more information but for those of you who are like get to the fun parts of our podcast we will keep moving forward but before um, you Google any of that make sure you subscribe to our podcast ah we said it early six minutes in this time so yes please subscribe boom we had 35 30, I think like 35 listens uh, last week so uh, keep that number coming and growing and uh, we will uh maybe have more of our fans on. So I think that would be a lot of fun also. That would be fun. Well, Warren Moon, happy birthday to you. And you should celebrate many more birthdays until you're at least 120 or 20 years old with lots of health and joy. I'm sure he'd appreciate that. Um, also today would have been Len Bias's 58th birthday. Len Bias was the second overall pick in the 1986 NBA draft. He died, I think, two nights after the draft from a cocaine overdose. And literally, his death forced the NBA, had a huge cocaine problem in the mid-80s, and it forced the NBA to re-examine itself and kind of put in anti-drug laws and really kind of cleaned up the league, which literally you had guys suspended for seasons on the Rockets after this because they had cocaine problems. Like the 86 Rockets literally made the NBA Finals, and then like two of their guys missed the whole next season because they were suspended for drugs for cocaine. So um, his death kind of really put a damper on like sports um, in the 80s and kind of stopped the Celtics championship run. Um, they won the 1986 NBA championship over the Rockets and then drafted him thinking he would help extend the careers of Larry Bird and Kevin McHale um, and uh, Robert Parrish, who were their big three at the time, because he'd be this young kid that could take some of the pressure off them. And then literally he died right after the draft. So the Celtics then didn't win a title for 25 years after that, um, after they won in 86. And it was kind of literally his death kind of marked the end of that Boston Celtics uh, era in 1986 
there's a great ESPN 30 for 30, 30 documentary called Without Bias that tells this entire story way more at length. And again, if somebody wants to um, do more research into what happened to Len Bias, I strongly recommend uh, watching that 30 for 30. So if I'm understanding this correctly, <laughs> my interpretation is that um, basically the, the Celtics were killing it as long as they could all be coked up at the games. And then no, as as... <laughs> I don't think a lot of the, it wasn't, I don't think it was a play, a lot of problem with a lot of the players on their team. Um, it was an NBA problem. I don't know if it was their problem, but it was, it was Larry Bard's body was starting to fall apart. Um, and they, they could have really used somebody that could have taken some of the pressure off them. I mean, they still made the NBA finals the next year. They lost to the Lakers in 87. Um, um, but, um, it's, um, did you ever play the bird versus Jordan on Nintendo? Um, uh, once or twice on the computer, I think a long, long time ago, obviously I was like five. Uh, the classic that was a good game and it was like also i think in nba jam i think larry bird it was basically like you could shoot from anywhere on the court and he would get it in as long as it wasn't like as long as it was outside of the three-point line he would basically get it in yeah Ah, larry bird good times well um i again great documentary and highly recommend watching even you um mr levinstein i think would enjoy that documentary Eh, i've already lost interest Awesome. So we'll move on. Um, the next topic we have is uh, you wrote Steamboat, Steamboat Willie Chugs, and I already knew this from even before you wrote this, that today is the 93rd anniversary of the Steamboat Willie cartoon, which is, is where Mickey Mouse makes his first appearance. And today would be, if you consider the anniversary, Mickey Mouse's 93rd birthday. So <coughs> happy birthday, Mickey. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. You know, the fact is is that ninety three years later, um, you know, Disney is our, the most powerful, one of the most powerful companies in the United States. But with everything that they've produced, you still everyone still knows Mickey Mouse. It all started um, with a mouse. It all started with a mouse. It's really amazing, and you know, obviously animation has evolved, but it's a it's a pretty pretty cool event. And um, yeah, I mean, the, the fact that from this one animation. Uh, this just massive corporation has been spun out is pretty cool. But yeah, so happy 93rd birthday to Mickey Mouse. 93rd, yep. He, um, it, it, and it, and he had other characters too. Oswald the Rabbit. Minnie was in it. First. Minnie Mouse was in it. Um, she might have been. I think it might have been her first appearance as well. Uh, I haven't seen it in a long time, so don't remember it then. So um, it's, um, again, people listening, highly recommend, if you haven't ever done so, take your kids to Disney World to really see it in action. Not Disneyland. Disneyland is in Anaheim, California. It's kind of L.A.'s ugly stepsister, um, and it's way less impressive than everything that's been created at Disney World. Um, Literally, the city of Orlando is in large part thanks of its current size and stature to the Walt Disney Company. So um, L.A. would still exist without Mickey Mouse. Orlando probably wouldn't. Um, as, as well as the fact that Walt Disney World is twice the size of Manhattan. So it's um, it's really an incredible uh, thing what they've created there. And um, and uh, I can't I don't know if you can tell, but I am a pretty big Disney fan. So and I, I am as well. But, uh, you know, I also I agree with you on that. You know, the, the whole experience there, especially with kids, is pretty amazing. And, and it's not just the parks like even um, 
was it called Disney Springs and all these other like everything around there. It's just it's just amazing what they've been able to build. And to me, it's a sign of when you focus in on the details and when you you know really put a lot of resources into doing things right. Um, the end result, it, you know, it's it's almost unique because it's so rare to have an experience in a place with that every single detail and everything is being done at a, you know, not perfectly, but a pretty high degree. Um, so I definitely uh, agree with you on that. Whether or not Orlando would still be a great city, um, hard to say, but, you know, there's no reason to go to California. That's, that's the main point. <laughs> yeah. Um, we can also do a whole podcast in the state of California. There's enough there. But, uh, uh, next uh, topic is something you wrote, A Waste of Life, and then Psalm. So I'll let you go into more detail about that. So this I thought was interesting. This was the day that the first Battle of the Somme in World War One. I'm guessing 1918? 1916. This is the day the first Battle of the Somme ah. was called off, which had started on July 1st of 1916. And um, so 105, fifth anniversary. Yes. And it was just one of those things where, you know, when you read the numbers, it's just atrocious for in one battle. And it's not just the numbers are so awful because, you know, in the, in the, um, in Barbarossa in the first few weeks of Barbarossa, hundreds of thousands of Russian soldiers were killed. So it's not that, it's not just the number that's so shocking. It's about the context around the death in terms of just the brutality of modern warfare, trench warfare, outdated tactics, married with modern weaponry and just the just brutal slaughter that happened there. And that it was allowed to go on for so long as a sort of, you know, no, no, territorial gain and just going back and forth of just, you know, marching soldiers into machine guns. Um, and, uh, you know, that it took you know, so long for them to, to call it off. Um, it's just, I mean, it's sort of almost symbolic of the entire war. I mean, um, war is awful in any event, but when it happens to the extent where almost there's a disregard for human life. Because even when we have wars nowadays, things are done to as much as possible, try to protect innocent civilians. The goal isn't to try to kill as many soldiers as possible. It's really to try to achieve objective, uh, strategic objectives, at least in the more traditional sense. Um, not to say that, obviously, um, that's not done through killing of the enemy, but it's... Um, it's pretty uh, one of the more awful things. Just literally having people just run across these wide open battlefields because they were again it was the beginning of the first ever trench warfare, but they weren't really fighting as much in the trenches. In order for go from trench to trench or to try to make anything, you'd run off, you'd run out over this wide open space and literally just get fired upon. I mean, um, just horrible. Yeah, and and you know, and it's interesting because at the end of what sort of broke the stalemate in the war was tanks. And yeah, that really was a major factor in it. There are obviously other factors, but tanks were a major factor in it. And um, I was just recently, recently watching a documentary about, about Barbarossa and when the Germans invaded Russia during world war two. And 
there are a few things that, you know, worked in the favor of the Russians to slow down the Germans. But the thing that really turned the tide was the T-34. So once again, there you sort of have this scenario where the Germans are, you know, not necessarily winning, but at least holding a line or moving a line. And um, the decisive factor, you know, whatever it was, uh, third, no, 28 years later was, uh, was tanks also. Right. You know, that obviously the, the warfare of World War One compared to World War Two, even though it's not that much of a length of time, it's about 25 years from 16 to kind of uh, 20, 16 to 39 really was only 23 years. But the warfare was so much different in World War Two versus World War One. So. And, and I, I think a big part of it was social, right? Like there was this change where like in World War One, it was like these royal families basically, you know, fighting each other and using quote-unquote peasants to to wage the war whereas in world war ii it was already more like you know people more like citizens defending their country to some extent got it our next topic um is all about the saint elizabeth's flood 700 years ago a dike broke in holland in the netherlands um, and literally, it was now ranked on the 20th on the list of worst floods in history, 700 years ago, literally today. Um, and they have no idea the accurate count, but somewhere between 2,000 and 10,000 casualties um, when um, there was a very strong um, extra tropical cyclone um, and water from the storm in the North Sea surged up the rivers, causing the dikes to overflow and break through. Um, <coughs> Um, excuse me. So it's um, it's funny. I was kind of googling afterwards to see if there was any. I mean, seven hundred years is a huge anniversary, and I was curious if I could see anything in the news about this in terms of maybe coming out of Holland or the Netherlands. I have yet to see anything. Then again, Google probably tr- when I hit news um, probably filters it more to um, domestic. But I just found it very interesting how you think that something. Uh, would have a some type of article that would come up when you Google it. So seven hundred years, ten thousand people. Two, yeah, I mean two thousand to ten thousand people. And if you think about it as a seven hundred years ago as a percentage of the world population, it was a way higher percentage than that would be today. Like if you did it a percentage, it's probably if you did it on a percentage basis, probably one of the worst floods in human history. Yeah, especially if you think about the population of well. That's the thing. Also, it wasn't the Netherlands back then. It wasn't even Holland. It was probably like it was. It was like some backwater part of some empire or something. So, and, you know, that's probably a part of it also. But um, yeah, that is interesting, and it's you know, and also there was no news then or anything like that. So it's not like you know, the fact that we even know about it is, is actually somewhat astounding um, that you know we even have records that this happened. Yeah. Um, no, it's a great, it's a great, um, it's literally a great reminder that things that happen in our lifetimes, um, it's, it, they can go on and come out in history um, and be mentioned in a Wikipedia article 700 years later, but doesn't mean that people or anything will remember them. It, it's a kind of a fascinating kind of twist on what goes down is historical remembrance and what doesn't, because at the time it might've been one of the worst disasters in human history um, and a percentage basis, probably still to this day. I mean, my guess is the equivalent of today's population. It's probably 
close to probably about a million people being killed. Yeah, sounds on a percentage basis. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, also, by the way, don't keep in mind people. And it's over. a natural disaster. This wasn't man-made, like a yeah. war or a holocaust. But back then, if you like cut your finger, you know, eating dinner, you usually were dead in like a couple of days. So. I also feel like the way people saw life back then was different, that it may not be as meaningful, but still. Well, it's also news that didn't travel around the world. There were probably very few people at that time um, that even heard about what happened there. It probably never, it probably never got out of mainland Europe. Um, yeah. So, um, but yes, um, be thankful you live in 2021, not 1421. That's the other thing I take away from that. Yeah, I mean, they, they probably, I mean, it's, I'm looking at it now, so there was a big storm. So they didn't even, they didn't have any warning systems, oh, they didn't have anything. Nothing. Um, and we move on to politics. What would you like to talk about our good friend, Andrew Yang? Yang gang, baby! So, okay. So, well, yes. But, you know, the, the interesting thing to me is it's always boggled my mind how this country for so long has just had two parties. And and don't say Tea Party because it's not really a, a no, party. No, Tea Party is an offshoot of the Republican Party. It's like saying the progressives, but they're still Democrats. It's still right. all one party. So, well, I, Not right. big one happy party, but all one party. No, definitely not happy. So Andrew Yang um, has started um, his own party called the Forward Party. And I'm a fan of Andrew Yang. I'm a, I'm a fan of, I'm not a fan of universal basic income per se, but I, I understand why he's proposing it and I tend to agree with him. Um, but what was interesting to me and why I want to bring it up is because he named his political party the Forward Party. Well, it's better than the Backward Party. I don't think anybody would want to join that. But what was so funny to me about that is that when... Um, Omer, no, was it when? Um... Oh, Kadima. Yeah, yeah, it's a good, it's a good <laughs> quote. I wonder if he took any of the, um, any of the, uh, any of the Israeli went into that, but. Well, I mean, not not nothing from his platform. His face is similar to Kadima, but the name. Yeah, that's true. The, the, yeah, but the name it's funny to me because I'm like, I wonder if like. You know, if there was some inspiration from it or something along those lines, because Kadima was also ever a... mentioned it to him even afterwards, <laughs> right? And because Kadima, when it was started, was that right? And and Kadima, when it was started, was meant to be like this, like alternative, right? It was, the, it was... so right to the Likudniks and to the yeah. uh, and to the Labor Party, exactly. Mapai, so and, Mapai, yeah, well, not Mapai Avoda, it was, it was Labor, right. um, Mapai. I think was either absorbed into the labor party or something. But anyways, but either way, I just thought it was really funny when I saw that that was what he named his party because I'm just like, okay, that's that's really um it's pretty random, right? It's pretty funny that that you know, he's chosen that as um as his name and, and knowing sort of the history of the uh the party in Israel. Um now, do I think he's going to win? No. But I think it's a it's a nice gesture and you necessary. You think he's definitely running in twenty four? I don't even know if he's creating this party to run for president in twenty four. I mean, <sighs> I it seems logical. I mean, we've had third party candidates swing elections before, and it's not even that long ago, nineteen ninety two. Ross Perot ran, and I think captured enough of the vote and enough Bush voters that it cost George H W re election of Bill Clinton. Now, yep. if you watch any of these 
CNN shows and, oh, no, it was HW and he said no new taxes. It's crap because I think the Ross Pro voters, like 85% of them would have gone for HW over Clinton. So <clears throat> um, I, I found that very interesting. That yeah. He it, could swing an election um, <laughs> away probably since he was a Democrat, maybe away from more Dems. But, I mean, there are plenty of Republicans, too, that are looking for alternatives. So it'll be very interesting to see, if, A, if he runs, and B, how successful he'll be. And, you know, something else I just thought about is, like, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the United States is not a parliamentary system. So correct. So how does this third party even get in? Like, does that mean it has to knock out one of the two existing parties? No, like, how does... no, no. He can run as a third party. He can be on the ballot. We've had other tiny third parties Green Party, Ralph Nader, who ran for and president, they had, they had of the vote. It's not seats. You don't seats anybody right, so like, for president. You have to. Uh, there's a minimum number of either delegates or signatures. There's a minimum thing you have to meet in order to get on the ballot. Um, in different states, each state is different. Like I don't think he was on every state ballot. Um, Nader, um, and there are also they, we've got. There are some crazy other parties in the United States, but so the president can be elected president and not be part of either of the major parties. But oh, how correct. do you how do you get a third party into the Congress or Senate? Is that even possible? Oh, there are people who run as independents. There's people, yeah, because you can you can still run without it. I mean, you just don't have the backing and financial support. Um, Jesse Ventura was the independent <laughs> was independent and, and became governor of Minnesota. But he wasn't in. <coughs> but I mean, was he a and he was a congressman before that. No, he he was a wrestler before that. So he was no. So that's my point. So, but there are congressmen who are being independent, like Joe okay. Lieberman, after being a Democrat, then ran as an independent because he felt like his party left him. And he got elected into. Congress. And he got elected. Yeah. And so then, he basically, name recognition in the entire state. And then he basically at that. So unlike every other congressperson, he can vote however he wants because he's not Correct. part of a party. And now, typically, he he just caucusing thing. with one party over another. That's what's been done in the past um, in order to um, in order to try to get ag their agenda across or something. Um, I, we have to go into way more detail in terms of why they caucus. I mean, I was a history major, not a poli sci major, but um, but literally there is. And the last time was in 1912 when um, Teddy Roosevelt actually beat William Howard Taft. The existing sitting president in the Electoral College came in second. Taft came in third, and Wilson won. So third parties. Um, I mean, it's a long time ago now, 109 years ago. But third parties have even beaten the last two parties in the Electoral College since 1900. Interesting. But Teddy Roosevelt was also a former president at the time when he did that. So you really need to have, if your third party has legitimacy, really need somebody in there. But Ross Perot is probably the best example of a kind of random person that swung an election. And you really don't hear a lot about it now when it comes to third parties because nobody has been able to accomplish it since then. So. So if I'm thinking about this right, then in order for Yang to have control or influence or whatever in Congress, well, he would have depends, to. Not he, if, he's, if he's running for president, it has nothing to do with Congress. No, no, I understand that, but in theory, what I'm so what I'm so what I'm getting at is if he could get representatives from each state to run as part of the forward party yeah he could then and he could get, caucus. right Correct. and then he and so if he gets like 20 or 30 
Right. Okay. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's limiting the United States to two parties. Okay. That's what I was trying to say. Okay. So, it's, right. okay. That makes sense. And whatever. I mean, it's interesting. And, you know, if he actually goes anywhere with it or not, who knows? But the question is, is he a dynamic enough of a politician to make a difference? Like, people uh, don't think so. That's, that's part of the issue with him. Like, I've heard him speak. He's very good. But I mean, um, in terms of what he's saying, but is he dynamic enough? Does he have enough gravitas? Does he have enough? No. Um, yeah, and and I have yet to see it. Like, if somebody like Nikki Haley went and started their own party, or um, I'm trying to think of another politician that is, or even a Marco Rubio, um, somebody that just has a, a lot more charm. I'd um, say he has as much charm as Marco Rubio. Fair enough. So maybe Nikki Haley is a better example. Yeah, um, Nikki Haley could start her own country, and I'd move there. Yeah, I know you're a big Nikki Haley fan, but she's or, so or, she's smart. She's or strong, even if she's strategic. Had, I mean, or I mean, or Trump is the best example. Trump could go start his own party and was thinking about it, and not the Republican Party, if he felt like he was cheated out of that Republican nomination back in 2016. I mean, yeah. he has enough charisma, and whatever that he has, 50 percent of that Republican Party that would follow him to the ends of the earth. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, and Yang, Yang, which know, is impossible. I know you flat earthers are disappointed, but the <laughs> earth is round, so there is no end of the earth. Don't let the curvature of the earth showing up and blocking radio waves from transmitting over the horizon um, cloud the issue with facts. And, but, you know, just to wrap up with Andrew Yang, I, you know, he's smart. I like him. I like his opinions on a lot of things. I don't agree with everything that he says, but um, Listen, at you least... should never agree a hundred percent with any politician because if you agree a hundred percent with them, then you're probably not having a lot of your own thought, and you're just going with a typical party line or partisan um, thing. Like I know a lot of people that hate Ted Cruz, for example, but really agree with him on term limits and believe in term limits. Um, and so again, you have plenty of Democrats who probably agree with Ted on one issue, and they would swear to 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 the end of the earth again, bring that back up, that, that they, there's probably nothing they would ever agree with them on. And I guarantee you, they would probably agree with them on that if they really felt that politicians in general were pretty crooked. What's rule number one in Yosef's book of rules? Don't follow any rule? No. I never make absolute statements. Oh, statements right. um, next topic on our list Um 50 years of freedom for the country of Oman. So Oman got its independence. Um, I always thought it'd be cool if they called themselves Oman. Um, but uh, today, since they got it from Great Britain. Um, and what fascinated me about Oman is that um, here you have a country in the Middle East that didn't even exist into itself 50 years ago and probably has... Um, it is a Arabic um, Muslim country, and it's very interesting to me how they um, have kind of um, ranked 69th most peaceful country in the world in the Global Peace Index. But it's very interesting to me as that how much that they've improved their country in the last 50 years. Um, Islam is obviously the official religion there. Um, but I just feel like it's very interesting how a lot of these Islamic countries, there's like kind of two paths. And it seems like, again, um, things can change uh, very much, but that Oman is very much into trying to become a, a country of the world right now. 
So, yes. Um, it's one of these places that you don't often hear about because it's sort of just busy doing things and, like you said, sort of building the country. And years ago was the first time that I really heard much about Oman when my sister, uh, my oldest sister Miriam, she is pretty heavily involved in the WordPress community around the world. And at some WordPress things, she met a lady from Oman. And the amazing thing was, if I remember this correctly, was there, they realized there were a lot of similarities between them. They're both, you know, religious mothers, you know, building out these technology platforms and, you know, whatnot. And my sister was doing it out of Israel and this lady was doing it out of Oman and they connected and, you know, all of a sudden my sister's learning all these things about Oman and it turns out that they actually have no problem with Israel. They may not have like, you know, the most direct relationship or whatever, just because of the neighborhood they're in. But um, even that, then this was years and years ago and they're long before there were any treaties or anything going on between the Emirates and Israel. And she told my sister like, yeah, you know, there's definitely, you know, that they, they had no hard feeling towards Israel. And so um, it's, it's an interesting country and it's, it's been, you know, it's, it's been that way almost all, all along. Since 71, kind of when they were founded. I mean, literally, slavery wasn't outlawed in Oman until 1970. I mean, really insane kind of... People don't really realize how backward the world, the rest of the world was. Like, they can't... Oh, the United States was a horrible place. I don't think people realize how backward the rest of the world was even up until 30 years ago um, or 20 years ago. Um, right now, um, the world's still in a much better place, but there's still horrible places there. We're very lucky to live where we are. Um, but I, I hope enough people realize how lucky and fortunate they are to live as much as they want to criticize America to really be thankful for living here um, and having as many freedoms as we still currently enjoy. Because um, 50 years ago it was a crazy world, and even some places way more recently, it's been pretty nuts. Yep, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, it, it's it's uh, one of those things that really bothers me when people complain about life in the United States. And yeah, but either way, happy there's evening. always room to work out and be better. But at the same time, it's it's got to be extremely thankful for where we are. For sure, and uh, happy Independence Day to Oman and being free from the yoke of the uh, United Kingdom and the Great British Empire. And. We're up to our random segment. Sports history and politics have all been knocked out. Uh, Kosher-style delis and Fiddler on the Roof. Care to explain, Mr. Levenstein? I want to actually... I'm curious what you think this topic is about. Um, the Americanization of Judaism or what like people think Jewish people are? This is Maybe. why we're... This is why we do this. This is why we're bros. You're absolutely right. Yeah, because when I think of those things, I literally think of like, if I was a non-Jewish person that knew nothing about Jews or Judaism, and I probably live more in New York, though, I don't think people in the middle of Wyoming think about kosher-style deadlies and Fiddler on the Roof, but like the New York, like kind of a, maybe not New York, but maybe other kind of urban non-Jewish people. This is what they associate with Judaism that don't ha know of anybody who's Jewish. That's kind of what those two things really. Uh, I think even the person in Wyoming thinks kosher deli 
And uh, I don't think and the person in Wyoming's heard of Fiddler on the Roof. Maybe not Fiddler on the Roof, but the kosher or deli kosher thing. style deli. I don't. I don't think it's made it out necessarily to Wyoming. Well, fine, but that so so the the reason I brought this up was because um, other other than uh, the family of the former vice president, um, uh, um, under Bush. Uh, wow, I can't believe I'm breaking on his thing. This is awful. This is what happens when we do a podcast at midnight. Is that you start forgetting Dick Cheney, Dick Cheney's family. Um, for everybody yelling at me, Dick Cheney right now. Yes, Cheney's family probably heard of Kosher Style Delis and Fiddler on the Roof. Well, and and I I could say Fiddler on the Roof is probably ha- harder, um, but um, but the reason I bring it up is because so the impetus to this topic was one of our friends brought this up as sort of saying like, do you think that it was a conversation around like people assuming that a coach just because someplace is like a kosher style or kosher deli or whatever let's say kosher style deli that it's actually kosher when in reality you can have a kosher style deli that is completely non-kosher and probably may not even have any kosher products in it and and this sort of assumption of a stereotype but you know what that got me to was that the stereotype about Jews that really upsets me is that there's this assumption that the kosher deli and fiddler on the roof represent what Jewish people are, when in reality, it's just one little segment of the diverse, and, and I use that term intentionally, like the diverse um, population that makes up the Jewish people, I mean, then, but you know, today as well, that you have Jews from all over the world with all kinds of different traditions that don't think of Jew- of kosher deli in any way, shape, or form. They think about their own Jewishness and sort of what their traditions are. And, um, you know, the, the stereotype that has been hijacked to some degree, projected to other degrees, but is, at the end of the day, inaccurate of what, a, you know, the Jewish people are and what a Jewish person is and, and how that's sort of been taken over and how it's perceived in society and it's something that i think it's it's important that we change and we we make clear I, that i do think we've moved a lot on that in the last six years like if this was 1961 i would be like yes this is what 90 percent of non-jewish people think i think that number is probably way down there's still a percentage that think that but i mean the fact that jews are in media and in, i mean where jews were in industries in 1961 versus 2021 it's night and day i mean um and the fact that it's almost a post-religious world with intermarriage at its all-time high again there are positives and negatives to that i mean again mostly negatives if you're looking at it from a jewish perspective and wanting to continue the jewish future but there are positives too because there's so much mixing like oh yeah my grandmother was jewish and this could be the most non-Jewish person in the world you've ever met or my brother-in-law is Jewish. I mean, literally in the last four presidents, three of them have had Jewish grandchildren. None of them Jewish. Three of them were Jewish grandchildren. Um, Bill Clinton's grandchildren are Jewish. Um, Trump has Jewish grandchildren um, or or half Jewish because depending on how you look at it, because Bill Clinton's son-in-law is Jewish. Uh, Trump has Jewish and modern Orthodox grandchildren and Biden has Jewish grandchildren. So it's kind of really um, an an astounding thing when you think about it, because before that you had zero Jewish grandchildren in the history of this country. So 
three of the last four presidents have had Jewish grandchildren. So it's literally, I I do think it's looked at differently and people literally don't talk about like, oh yeah, they're the ones who like go to synagogue on Saturday or church on Saturday versus Sunday. Like, I, I think that is very much kind of our parents' generation, how people viewed when our parents were growing up. I do think how our kids and then were growing up, um, the Jewish people are looked at as a whole way differently. And we've kind of really moved off that stereotype. So I don't, I don't totally agree with you on that because of all those examples you just listed of these sort of more diverse, whatever, you know, um, personas of Jewish people, all the people you define though are most likely of Eastern European or European descent. And that's my point. My point is, is that that is not representative at all of the. Oh, of, of all the Jews, yeah. Um, but it's this is, but this is an American representation, and on the whole, American Jewish population is still a um, Ashkenaz European centric group of Jews. Because I guarantee you, if you ask somebody in Chad, Africa, what a Jew is, they're not talking about fiddler on the roof and kosher style delis. They'd probably be like, I don't know what a Jew is, or I've never met one before. Oh yes. I saw one once um, in an airport and he had on all these crazy garments. Um, I, I, I just think that for an American, for the American audience, for which kosher style delis and fiddler on the roof is kind of what they know about us. I do think that that's kind of changed over the last 60 years. For sure, but... Watching Mrs. Maisel and then watching today, um, it, it, which is, I think the best example um, of, of this in terms of seeing what 61 was like, I mean, that literally fits that era to is what it feels like. Our era, I tend to think it's a little different. So, but, but again, I, I still think that the point that to me is important to make is not that we need anyone's like any, any sort of acknowledgement as like a group really, but it's more to say like what you know of what most people in America, let's just, you're right, fine. Let's just focus in on how Americans perceive the Jewish people. Most people in America would not necessarily assume that, um, you know, that, that there is any cultural, cultural. diversity right. or, 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 or even racial, I mean, however you want to define Correct. racial, like skin colored diversity amongst Jewish people. And that's just inaccurate. There's Arab Jewish people. There's African Jewish people. There's, you know, there's so you know, there's there's so much. There's so I many definitely different. I agree with you that 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 a lot of people just assume it's that classic Ashkenaz. Yeah, and that's my point. And and the reality is that I mean I don't know. I can't. It's actually an interesting question. I'll probably look into this after the podcast. But you know, what the actual pod percentage of the global Jewish population is Ashkenaz versus Sephardic. Um, and and sort of what that what that looks like because my guess is at the very least it would be fifty fifty, if not that there's possibly more people from Sephardic descent um, than Ashkenaz descent. And with this with the huge asterisk, which asterisk, which is that's that, not true in the United States. And also today in Israel, you know, there's the the intermarriage quote unquote in Israel is that. Ashkenazim and people of you know Ashkenazi descent and Sephardic descent are marrying each other left and right, and there's no longer like any you know it's just sort of everyone is just for the most part just marrying each other. Um, Bunch of blended families, which is great in terms yeah. of our genetic pool, um, as well as other things in terms of getting more um, out there from the different 
culturals and customs yeah. and all. I will say also as an example though, like Paula Abdul, she's a Jewish girl from Canada. Like literally, like nobody knows. Like you think you see that name, the dancer, she's on one of the first American Idol judges. Like my wife was shocked when I told her Paula Abdul was Jewish. I'm like a traditional Jew too growing up. So um it's just an example that Jews come in many forms and um and shapes and sizes and colors and everything. So, um, and our final topic for the night is the hyperloop. So, uh, the hyperloop had its first successful test about a, uh, about a year ago. Um, it's basically the system that, uh, Virgin is working on Richard Branson about trying to transport people under either overground or underground using maglev, um, to pick up speeds to basically compete with the speed of air travel. So kind of bullet trains around the United States. And to me, the most fascinating thing about this is, okay, you're mapping the speed of airplanes um, and assuming security isn't going to be that much more, again, getting something up in the air and, and taxing, whatever, obviously it's going to be more efficient than air travel, but a, by how much and B, there's this whole safety element, but I think the biggest thing they're trying to sell on is the amount of carbon neutral that it would do versus what jet travel. And I think that's their biggest selling point they have to stick with because this isn't going to revolutionize um, how we travel. Um, because even if we just, everybody stops taking planes and starts taking the hyperloop, it's not like we're getting to places much faster. Um, and maybe what airplane travel will do is maybe they will become faster as a result of this in order to try to keep up having air travel demand, which would be great. Um, but it's, I think, the huge the emissions issue. And even though the airline industry is doing the best they can, there's no way they're going to be able to compete with maglev in terms of emissions and emission standards. So um, I think for, as an environmental issue, the Hyperloop is extremely important. And I think as just an alternative for people who either hate to fly or um, think that this can be way more efficient, maybe in the long term, because the airplane industry has, uh, airline industry is still, uh, efficiency is not their middle name, um, as well as delays. Um, but something that I found very interesting, and it, 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 to me, it's always fascinating how long until all this stuff finally takes off and becomes an active alternative um, and it's, it just seems like, um, there are all these great ideas out there, flying cars, maglev trains, um, uh, hotels in space, uh, moon, uh, moon, um, um, settlements, Mars settlements. There's all these great, huge ideas, but it almost still feels like we're in the sci fi mode about it. And that even though we probably have the technical vision, um, is there enough dollars and cents and enough just public want or need for this um, in order to kind of advance how we travel and where we travel to. So, yes. And I, and I agree with you, you know, and I, when I was reading through, and by the way, like I actually found a lot of inspirational things in the way the version um, team was communicating about journey and, and uh, you know, the destination and the trip and, and that's sort of ties into stuff at work, but um, the sustainable element, right? The environmental impact was the key thing that stood out as sort of the value proposition. Correct. Speed is cool, but, you know, yes, I was looking and I was like, oh, well, it'd be faster to take a Hyperloop from Houston to Tel Aviv than to fly. But in, is that realistic, right? And is it even <laughs> yeah, realistic, that is to, not realistic 
is it even realistic to take a hyperloop from Houston to San Francisco? Maybe. But then if you say to yourself, well, the biggest value proposition here, because safety, let's be real, right? The, rea- the flying is safe, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's safer than driving a car. Um, so By really, a wide it, margin. Right. So, yes. So if it's about sustainability, then what I went and looked up online was the very, very uh, impactful keywords. Two words, electric airplane. And although the first article was Bloomberg and they wanted me to pay, which I'm not going to do, (laughs) I found a different article under Interesting Engineering titled, A New 100-Seat Electric Plane Could Cause a Breakthrough by 2027 with an Impressive Range of 460 Miles. Got it. So all those quick little trips from Houston to Dallas could be electric. Yep. Um, That would be... um... Um, or even, I mean, 460 miles that literally would be revolutionized New York to DC and some of these very heavy, um, frequented, um, shorter, um, or or Boston to DC is the best one because it takes six hours on Amtrak. Um, um, an airplane travel is still the best way to go on that. So very interesting. The problem is even with these electric planes, you still have the takeoff time, the weather issues, the landing time. Uh, waiting on, it just, for some reason, I don't know if it's just me. It just seems like train travel, even as bad as Amtrak is and slow as it is still seems so much more efficient than when you go through an airport. Now, I don't understand still why the security at, at train stations is not what it is at airports. I'm still confused by that and would love for somebody to explain to me why anybody listening to the podcast, I'd love feedback as to why they think it's okay for trains to have basically no safety when you board them versus airplane travel um oh apparently i'm not on the podcast anymore or he's not well um anyway um i'm going to end it here and then see what we got recorded and then we might resume if not have a great evening the podcast not myself um i was just saying how um if uh, and we're also back for our viewers um i was just saying how i still don't understand i would love it if somebody listening to our podcast could, could explain it to me why we don't have the same level of security at our train stations as we do at our airports when people can again even though trains can't take off and they're kind of on fixed tracks and maybe that's the entire issue there still could be tons of damage and there's tons of lives on those trains and why there isn't more safety <coughs> keeping something from happening to those trains. I mean, the same question can be asked about the subway. In uh, Well, I consider subway a, I mean, it's a train. I, I agree, but there's a lot more. It seems like there's a lot more cops um, in the New York city subways than there are on. Um, and it's also a number of people. Um, also, Amtrak's got a ton of people. I've been to Amtrak stations. I've never seen a security person there on the entire thing. So um, maybe they have people like air marshals on airplanes who are undercover on there. But at the same time, it just it just it seems very shocking to me how lack of um, safety there really are in in train stations, especially in some of these smaller train stations that you stop at on the way from large city to um, large city. Literally, we were on from Boston to. DC on an Amtrak train, me and Stephanie, and literally you stop at one of these train stations, like you're like the only people there.
Yeah. So it just it seems very, very um very, very not intelligent to not have that level of security or at least some level of security at these train stations. I think you sort of touched on it where um you know the the fact is is that what's the and then I say this sort of from I say this from a, let's just say from a very um, trying to be as objective as possible. What's the worst thing that can happen with a train, right? If a train, well, right, like I mean, what, every let's say everybody on board is the worst thing that can happen. Let's leave it there, and I think people understand exactly what we mean. Um, that's a few hundred people. Maybe you could potentially keep going or crash it in a station um that's heavy if you keep going let's say there's it seems like there's a stopping point like in in washington when you hit the end of it there's a thing but if you don't slow down maybe or i, I don't know or if but, it blew up let's say you drive it you bring a train into penn station or um it, uh, let's not Grand central right all i'm saying is is like <laughs> with the worst case scenario is, Fine. So here's my counter. But one second. So my my what I'm getting at is the worst case scenario is people with an airplane. If you you know like when we were talking about last week, right? That airplane that was hijacked, they could have crashed into a nuclear reactor. You can't crash a train into a nuclear reactor. You can't crash a train into the White House, the Pentagon, the right. Twin Towers, so and, and I think that's ultimate. the difference. So my only thing is before 2001, people didn't view airplanes in that way either. That what's the worst that it can do? Literally, the plane crashes and it's the people on board. People didn't really ever thought about using an airplane and all of its jet fuel to do so much damage. Yet, there was still security. It might have been small security, but before you went on an airplane, even before Spindle 11th, you had to walk through a metal detector and you had to put your stuff in an x-ray machine. There is still none of that at train stations. And this is back when we thought airplanes, the worst thing that could happen is 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 the same thing as the worst thing that can happen on a train. Yeah. No, I, so. I, I, I think there should be security. Um, you know, when, when I walk through, I mean, obviously it's been a long time, but you never walk through Grand Central or Penn Station in New York. It's actually it's, those places are safer to me a little bit because you've got a lot of either plainclothes police officers or just police officers there, and there's tons of cameras everywhere. It's the smaller stations that can board mm. the same trains without a lot of security. So it, it to me, it's actually not the heavier targets is where I walk through. It's when I'm like, <clears throat> we got off at some random station in New Jersey because it was near Stephanie's parents' house, um, and I'm like, what? Where is? anybody like any yeah. human being anybody could walk onto this train right now and there'd be zero stopping them for sure and it's the same story in long island you just hop on train from long island railroading be in the city but again to me with but the this, amtrak trains i think typically have like hundreds of people on them well and and but still going back to penn station and grand central you're right there's plain clothes police officer inside and there's lots of police officers and even national guardsmen walking around security cameras everywhere and the cameras but the doors the entranceways are still completely open anyone yeah. can walk in yeah so um well i on that uh dour note or um i think we've well and and by the way the, the question is just before we wrap up then sure. is how would americans react to suddenly having to 
wait in line and have themselves checked and do all the things that you need to do to maintain security at these places. They'd be happy about it, but they'd have to get used to it. I don't think people were thrilled about it after September 11th, but I also don't think that we should wait for a horrible event to happen on one of our trains in order to do that. I mean, maybe that's what it'll take to get public sentiment behind it. But I mean, I literally think if somebody said, this is now a soft target, we need a new level of security. I mean, then people would follow it. I mean, and not have a choice. Yep. So, um, so let's hope for, let's hope for both of our sakes that there are, there are things going on at these train stations and even at these stops that we don't know about that keep us all safe, but it's definitely not, it's definitely not, um, able to see from a public perspective. Yep. Agreed. Well, that concludes our weekly podcast. This was supposed to be my wife's due date. So next week's weekly podcast, it will be interesting to see if it occurs. Hopefully there'll be another member of my family by then, uh, happy and healthy. Um, But uh, with that, Mr. Levenstein, I wish you a great weekend. I wish you a great weekend as well. And if it doesn't work out, then I guess also happy Thanksgiving. Ah, Much appreciated. To all listeners out there, a happy Thanksgiving to you and Once again, subscribe to our podcast and thanks for listening. Have a good night.